You're listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. In each episode, we'll share the customer experience stories and insights you need, straight from the sharpest minds in CX, to better connect with your customers and create customers for life. Let's start the show. Hello, hello. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to CX Confessions. I am Catherine Calvert, CMO of Coros, one of your f- favorite hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my inimitable partner, Mr. Spike Jones. Hi, Spike. Hello. That's a great word. I'm going to have to look that one up. But uh, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for, you know, letting me come back each time. Well, thanks for being the GM of our Strat Services team and being my partner in crime. We have another great conversation lined up today. I am very excited to introduce our special guest. We've talked to CMOs, we've talked to CCOs, we've talked to heads of digital experience. Today, our guest has worn all of those hats and more. It is my pleasure to introduce Mr. Jonathan Becker. Jonathan is president of Sharks Sports and Entertainment. So that's the parent organization for the San Jose Sharks, the Barracudas, the Sharks Ice Facility, and the Sharks Foundation. He came to the Sharks from a long career in technology. So Jonathan was, he spent a decade, I should say, at SAP in a variety of roles, including chief marketing officer and chief digital officer. He's also been a CEO three times over. He's on the board of multiple companies. He is a blogger and a frequent podcast guest. So it is a privilege to have Mr. Jonathan Becker join us today. Hey. Hey, Catherine. Good to see you, listen to you. Hey, Spike as well. And and thanks for the over-the-top introduction. You, you should give me a lower bar because then I could meet the, the standards of that introduction. I'm just angling for tickets, just angling for tickets. I mean, that has got to be hard, right? You're probably always wondering that. And so I'm going to dive right in. Like when you signed on as president, it was about three years ago, San Jose Sharks, I'm from California, that is a massive presence. You don't always think about ice hockey in California. And the Sharks have been a transformative piece of our Bay Area culture here. They have such a fervent community a real like brand ethos, right? And so, you know, these conversations we have on CX Confessions are around creating customer experiences, creating connection and authenticity. Nowhere is that more critical than in the sports industry. So when you joined, what was most important for you to think about and learn about your fan base? So Catherine, I I spent most of my career as a B2B person and, and focused on marketing. So I was really excited to join a consumer brand, uh, frankly, even a passion brand. Look, you know, I've been a tech marketer a lot and no one has ever tattooed the logo of my brand on their skin or spent so, t- so much time dressing up and stuff like that. And so, you know, joining an organization with that kind of passionate following, was I knew it was going to be different. It was something I'm very excited about. And in fact, the brand ethos when I joined. And so the, the touch tone behind all the marketing we did and the activation literally was sharks for life. I mean, that was the phrase which resonates with us because we always talk about customers alike as marketers, right? And in fact, maybe the highlight of my first couple of months is we made the playoffs as we almost always do, although not this year. And we gave out 300, we announced we were going to give out 300 free real tattoos at a local tattoo parlor in San Jose 
to fans that showed up. Real tattoos. Real tattoos. Not yeah. like fun rub-ons. No, or not henna ink tattoos that wear out wear off a week, but actual customers for life, sharks for life, real tattoos. And I thought, what a nice little idea, right? And 300, right? We announced more than a thousand people showed up to get these tattoos. Some of them camping out overnight so that they could say that they were first in line and put on their social media tag, they would do this. And we were like, wow, overwhelmed. We ultimately ended up, I think, putting out 550 or so tattoos. But I was like, see, look at this brand. Look how passionate it is. It's a wonderful thing. Exactly. That's so, so there's, that's, that's your 550 diehards. And then you're sort of getting into the job and you start thinking about the rest of the opportunity for the sharks. Well, that was my, my wake up moment, I think about, uh oh, maybe this passion and customer for life isn't the best thing necessarily, which is a funny thing for a marketer to think about, particularly one that comes from tech. Cause that summer we do what I've often done. And I'm assuming most of us done, which is we started surveying our customers and asking them questions. And one of the things that came up is some of our more casual fans said, you know, that was too over the top. Seeing all those images of tattoos, I'm not ready to tattoo my body. I'm not ready to even say I'm a customer for life. I'd like you guys. Maybe those aren't my people. Exactly right. Maybe that's not my people. Maybe I'm not in that tribe. Maybe you don't want me around. And that was a really branding wake-up call for us. And so, we pivoted, even though this has been a really successful, you mentioned it, Catherine, almost transformative. I mean, we live in a land with no ice. So we actually shut down Sharks for Life and we switched our brand to be teal together, to inclusively to say there's room for everyone in the Sharks universe. We want to unify everybody that cares about us, regardless of who they are, under teal. It's a, I mean, teal is not a regular color. You don't see many brands use teal, right? It, they're almost always red or blue. Maybe a few people throw in yellow to be a little bit different, but teal's unusual. So we'll mark that as the thing that unifies us and gives room for people. In fact, what we said is we'll even make that the hallmark of our diversity, inclusion, and belonging, which we actually call teal for change and say, we love you no matter who you are, come and join and do this. And there are lots of stories I can tell you, but three years after we made that change, Brand Infinity, which we thought was as high as it could get, has actually grown by about 30%. Revenue is up as well. So it's clear by being more inclusive, we actually increased the size of the Sharks territory. That, that's great. Like throwing the doors open and saying all are welcome. Fantastic. But I know you never want to alienate those diehard fans. So what? It, so, you know, I almost, when I was prepping for this, I almost like, oh, I should talk about like the EF Hutton commercial. I was like, no, no one's going to know what I'm talking about. But talking to that core and then other people are going to want to listen in because like those are those fervent fans. So so what do you do with those diehard folks? You know, Spike, that was probably the heart of the discussion we had before we looked to the new brand. And, and frankly, if you rename a company like you guys did, that's one of the things you worry about is leaving people behind that have supported you for a long time. So I think we did what everyone says they want to do, but doesn't awfully do, which we we recruited the most diehard people. We brought them in and said, you know, we love you. You've supported us for a long time, but we want the world to grow. We want more. Don't you want that as well? And they would say, yes, but we need special treatment because we've been here before anybody else. And we said, okay, but Teal Together doesn't mean special treatment. What do you really want? And they like, we want to be first. Allow us to be the first group that embraces this new strategy because we want, if we're there before anybody else, 
In fact, many of the clubs and many of them renamed the name of their clubs to something the teal. So now a lot of them have teal in the name, whereas they had sharks in the name before that as well. And they, we actually let one of our clubs pre-announce that we were making this switch so that they really felt like they were in the know. And then I must admit, I'm a little bit of what I sometimes call a ditch to ditch guy. I did something really controversial, which is I, we announced also that we were abolishing our own official fan club. We said, we're going to no longer be in control of our own destiny. We're going to let you guys, because deal together. So if they're really going to be community driven, we'll let you guys to do it. And what happened, thank goodness, worked out okay. But you never, there was a bit chaos at first, which is people started self-segmenting. There were some people that cared more about stats. And, you know, my guess is they're more analytical and maybe more the tech guys and the, or gals. And some that are more culture and some that are based on player trivia and background, et cetera. And, Three years later, there's sort of three larger fan clubs rather than the one one we sponsor. There's probably 20 some of them out there. But by giving up control, which was scary for us to do, Teal Together felt much more authentic. It felt community driven rather than the brand just saying we're about the community and then still want to control everything. Absolutely. I mean, there is brands have this illusion of control, right? And so it's this thing like, we're so, oh, no, it's ours. And if we give it away, what are people going to say about us? And of course, you know, with the rise of social, we've seen that 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 truly is an illusion, but especially for a sports ball team. That's, that's, I'm not, I'm a casual fan of the sports balls. So I say the sports balls, but it's, it's something that like you, you never see. I mean, I grew up in Dallas. So of course they brainwashed us to be Cowboys fans and like that you don't, you don't, you don't give up any control about the reputation of the brand and what people saying about the brand. So that I'm sure it was controversial to abolish the fan club and hand it over, hand the keys over to those customers and let them run with it. So Spike, you're absolutely right. And if you measure the success of a community by the number of engaged people, that's increased by more than 50% and since we gave up control. Yeah, and, and I love that too. And so I'll, I'll shut up because this, this is what gets me excited because a lot of people are like, no, but we look at all the members we have. And like, no, 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 no. I don't care if you have 5 million members. It is how many of them are truly deeply engaged. And so, you know, in other, in other lives, we would build these gated communities and you know we would also let you'd have to jump over a hurdle to get in and the brands would ultimately go well uh, but we just want lots and lots of people to join the community and like what well, doesn't matter and, and if we even gate it and say hey you have to do this little thing we would see those engagement numbers rise and rise and rise to 30 40 percent which is amazing so good for, good on you for for the right metrics right it makes me think, and Jonathan, you and I have worked together a little bit here and there of conversations you and I have had about as brand people, as marketers, it can be really exciting to think about awareness, right? And just getting lots of eyeballs. And I know you're a passionate advocate for awareness is cool, but it's a distraction. Like what are, what really matters is, are you in the consideration set? Are you the person when the actually, they might know the name, but when it goes to buy a ticket, when they're thinking about how they want to spend the weekend in your world, like, are they actually committing to your brand? Now that has a level of complexity, right? All of a sudden it's not just control, but you've got all of these conversations happening. You know, when we're talking to some of our B2B conversations, those are a little more focused, even some of the brands. Now you, even some of the consumer businesses, you know, there's, there's proliferation, but when you add the passion and ferocity of feeling that you attach to a sports team, those conversations can be prolific and passionate. How do you manage that conversation? How do you stay in? How do you think about keeping everyone, quote unquote, happy? Well, maybe 
Two things, Catherine. First is remember their conversations and conversations are by definition two ways. And I think too often we as marketers and we as brands are still focused on the outbound communication and getting our message out. I mean, the old joke about, you know, two ears, one mouth, listen twice as much as you do or measure twice, cut once, whatever metaphor you want to use, make sure they really are conversations. The other thing that I've learned maybe the hard way from my change from my B2B world to now is there's zero chance you're going to make everyone happy. That just, there's too many individuals with too many different opinions. But I would say the main theme is figure out what your centerness is. And our center point is we're in the business of delivering experiences, right? We're not in the business of putting on events. We're not in the business of running ice hockey games. We're not in the business of concerts. Each of those are experience. We deliver experiences so our clients can have memories. And since We're in the business of delivering experiences to create memories. If that's our main core, then the experiences are defined not by us, but by the consumer themselves, by our customers. It's a funny way to say English, but customers experience experience, not brand. And so therefore, you have to have the feedback from them to understand what they experienced, not what you thought you delivered, but what they actually consumed, if you will use that word. And so... Frankly, the constructive feedback, even if it's negative and even if it's hard to see here, and frankly, if every week I'm not going, but, 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 then you're not authentically trying to get better and there's no chance you can do exceptional experience. So silly little example, if you look at my Twitter account, you'll see that I routinely get hounded during games by people that say there are no salt and pepper shakers. There's not enough ketchup and all that. And you might think... Why is Jonathan bothering responding to people about these little things? Because those little tiny details are the things that people remember, right? In fact, I used to joke in a a sporting event, the secret to success was, did the home team win and maybe is the beer cold? But now these little micro moments are the things that people remember. And if salt shakers are the things that gets under your skin, that's what you'll tell people and the negative word of mouth. So you got to sweat the small stuff. What, well, I'm curious, thinking back on the last, you know, the last year, when I think of a sports experience or a sporting event as being a thing, right, that community of being in person, how did you start thinking about the customer experience when it was either an empty arena or how do you keep, how did you keep people connected when they couldn't be in the stadium to complain about the salt and pepper? If the Sharks customer who complains about salt and pepper is actually listening to this podcast. My apology. Thank you for helping us get better, by the way. So that, that's a compliment. I think Catherine is- Feedback's a gift. Feedback's a gift. That's exactly right. I think the, the, the center point was because our mental shift from we're an event business, which is what we thought three years ago, to we're experience business. For an event business, that demands that we're in person and we have to have 18,000 screaming fans. If we're experienced business, we can deliver experiences another way. So as an example, we'd never done streaming hockey ever before. We didn't have a Twitch account. We didn't use NHL 20. And so when the lockdown happened, we was like, well, can we deliver experiences digitally? And we did. In fact, we did some really cool things rather than other brands that just did computer simulation team A versus team way. We, we allowed fans to digitize themselves by telling us their height, whether they shoot left or right, what their jersey number would be, what they wanted their name, et cetera. And then we simulated into the game alongside their favorite player. So we created these sort of fantasy lineups. One quick story, because I have way too many of them. So many cool things happened. During one of these experiments, a fan got injured. Of course, he got 
digitally injured, not injured in real life. In EA, there's a there's a switch, which we didn't know about ahead of time, that you can say prevent injuries or allow injuries. By default, it's on, so we allow injuries. I mean, it is hockey, so, so come on. It is hockey, right? You can get injured in hockey. And so th- this fan gets injured in the first period, right, and starts screaming on Discord, which is the way you tend to communicate in Twitch and stuff like, not fair, not fair, I want my money back. So some things don't change between in-person experiences and digital experiences, right? But then their favorite person, who was their, their favorite professional athlete who was playing on a line with them, literally carried them into the locker room, right? And then we got our trainer in real life to call this person and tell them how to recover from their digital injuries. Here's the training. And so you, you see, can see a stream goes back onto Twitch later on that set, that changed from unfair, no way, I want my money back to this is the, my favorite experience of my entire life. So my point, Catherine, is you can create memories which is the business we're in, by crossing the physical and digital boundary. You don't have to be just anchored into your in-person. That's super cool. Really great story. So look, there are, there are a lot of tried and true marketing tactics that a lot of teams do. There's a lot of expectations that, that are met or aren't met. What is a commonly held belief in your industry that you just don't agree with? So Spike, one of my personal mantras is words matter. I'm probably overly focused on words because I think words have signal actions to what you think is important. What you think is important to an organization, what you think is important to your partners, what important to your customers. And so, you know, I didn't like, for example, during the pandemic, the word socially distance, the phrase, I guess, socially distance, because actually we wanted to be socially close, but physically distant. So I refused to ever say the phrase socially distant. I said physically distant, socially, and let's find ways to say socially close. It seems like a small thing, but it's a signal action. And maybe I'll also say that I don't really like the phrase customer experience. Now, might be, maybe that's tough to say to you, Spike, and you, Catherine. I apologize that since CX is, is like the heart of what you guys talk about. But the reason I don't, don't like the phrase often is because when people hear it, they intellectually spell it all caps customer and little letters experience, and which is exactly backwards. And the focus in all the language we use is, okay, what's the customer lifetime value? How much revenue are we making about this customer? Let's put the customer in the middle and all that. And and so much of the conversation is customer-oriented as opposed to experience-oriented. In fact, I've heard many tech companies, maybe you guys do it as well, talk about how do you turn customers into fans? So it immediately means you talked about revenue because they were a customer, a transactional relationship already, and now you want to make them happy. And the nice thing that we about the freemium model, when we all had freemium models, although they're not nearly as popular anymore, is it forced us to make them fans first before they parted with their dollars. And only after they parted with their dollars, they were, I'm sorry, after they became fans and said, oh, this software works pretty nicely, then we turned them into customers. That's the business I'm in. I'm in the business of creating fans. Some of them will give me money later on, but frankly, of the 2 million or so fans I have, only 18,000 can fit in the building every night. So... It makes me fan-focused as opposed to revenue-focused. And one more thing here while I'm on a sort of a tirade, and I apologize. What makes it even worse is people say end-to-end customer experience, which, again, the signal is unless you can solve every problem end-to-end, this gigantic thing, then it's not worth doing it at all. And I'm, I'm just all or nothing just sounds too big for most people, right? Can you solve the salt shaker problem? Yes, we can solve the salt shaker problem, right? Can you figure out... It's those micro moments that matter the most. So I tend to talk about XM, 
which is moments of experience and focusing on the little things that you can change rapidly rather than the end-to-end customer experience. So that, that's my passion, I guess. I, and I would even take it one step further. In fandom, there is no end. Like it is a continuous. There is, so there's a beginning, but there is no end. I used to work this one company and we did, talked about campaigns versus movements. And a campaign has a beginning and end, but a movement starts and then it just keeps going as long as the people want to keep it alive. So that's what you're doing, it sounds like. Well said, Spike. I, I might borrow that language if you don't mind. It's all yours. Thinking about those 2 million fans, and I don't know if that's a fixed number. Do you, like, do you have a, a sense of what that should be? How do you know them? What's the data that we're all in a, we're in a world of so much data. What's the data that matters most or is most helpful to you as you try to really understand those moments that matter for your fans? You know, it's funny, Catherine, I probably blew one of my own things is I went immediately threw out a number like 2 million, which is an ego metric. And, and the size of that is less important, right? We do tend to more segment those customers. And we talk about those that are in the Bay Area, Northern California, versus those that are within several hundred miles of us, versus those that are North America, versus international. And we treat the international segment much different because the odds of the international fan coming to a game ever is very low. Although occasionally it does happen. And when it happens, we make a big deal of it, right? We put them on TV, or we do them behind the scenes because it's so rare. And those rare things spread like wildfire during the international fan base. But what we tend to do is we ask fans to share with them the most important thing about them. Rather than saying, here are the 10 fields that we need to put in our customer database and say that's important, we flip it around and say, what do you think we need to know about you? Because fans have a better idea of what they care about. And so I guess in the heart of it, I'll start with is we care the most about feedback. And sometimes people tell us the strangest stuff. I was trying to think of a good example. So I'll start with the obvious stuff. Fans typically, when you don't ask them, say, this person is my favorite player. Well, that's good to know. That, that already tells you a little bit about the content and how to engage. But the most often thing you hear is how they became a fan. My, I, I actually watched something on TV and I got intrigued by the teal color. We have a very unusual logo of a shark biting through a hockey stick, which has been voted the best logo in all of hockey for many years. That attracted a lot of people as well. The community-based thing that we've been doubling down on diversity inclusion attracts a lot of people because that's unusual in hockey, which frankly started out as a Canadian sport primarily for white males. And so each person tells us what attracts us to them or how they get it. Some of it is unexpected stuff that tells us how we need to communicate them. And we're not, frankly, we're not always good at it. We're still learning how to personalize content. You know, I used to say eventually we'd get to the segment of one. I'm not sure that'll ever happen, but, you know, we still operate probably in 12 or 14 big segments. I'd love to get to 30 or 40. And I think we'd be a lot lot better off. So, okay. It is called CX Confessions, even though after this, we might be, might be XC Confessions. So we ask this of every one of our illustrious guests over, take a look back over your career, over your long and distinguished career and share, if you will, a hard lesson that you have learned along the way. Maybe something that didn't work so well, but you made it better the next time or just something that you've always kept in mind after it didn't go so great. Spike, I've made so many mistakes over my career that we'd have to have a 30 hour podcast for me to highlight just the interesting ones. But I think the, the, the enduring one that I say, but I relearn probably every year of my life is that culture eats strategy, no matter what. Lots of people have been attributed to that quote. It's unclear if I've done some research who really came up with first, but the, the best way of saying that is 
no matter how much you plan, nothing works out unless everyone's bought into it. And the everyone bought into it is your employees, your partners, your customers, et cetera. I said earlier in this podcast, you know, measure twice, cut once. But I think the key learning I had, and, and as it doesn't matter what we're in, is that we spend all this time building up strategy. And I'm sure you've all read strategy documents that are 10, 20, 30, 40 pages. You've all been involved in planning exercises and budgeting exercises that take hours, days, and weeks. And, and I'm not trying to make fun of them, but they're very complicated and hard to understand for the people that didn't develop them. And then when they're done, you go almost immediately into execution mode. But nobody other than the core team that was designed them really understands the nuances of them. And so what I've learned the hard way is flip that on its head. However much time you spend developing it, spend at least that much time communicating it. Spend at least that much time socializing it. Take your strategy, take your planning, take your budgeting, and frankly, create a community-based version of that well. Bring people in earlier, get there of that. And because that cultural aspect is much more likely to be successful. And, and so I'm, I'm at the point that a pretty good plan communicated and socialized really well tends to beat an excellent plan with poor communication and socialization. I think that's the thing I learn over and over again. That is so great. I, I think there's, we've all, it's a very familiar feeling, right? You finally bake the document, it's ready, you're done, right? Now let's go do. And if it's not, if you don't pull through, two months later, you're looking at it like, well, why was that important, right? Or if you weren't the author of it, that ownership piece, that connection to how does this impact my life, my work, my meaning, when that gets lost, the execution just isn't there at the right level. All right. Well, thank you for that. So much goodness in here. We do. You talked about personalization and what people want to share. We love to let our audience get to know our guests a little bit as a person as well. So we always wrap up with what we call our quick fire confession questions. So if you are ready, I will launch into the five questions to get to know Jonathan Becker a little bit better. So number one, what was your first concert? First one that I went by myself without having to be chaperoned by my parents, I think I'll answer that one. Because the other eyes, the answer might be even more embarrassing, was the Cars Farewell Tour. So you might be dating myself if you go look that up, which means the song Just What I Needed is sort of a, a mantra, because I think that's how they opened the concert. So there you go. Rick Ocasek and the Cars. Where was it? Where were you? Yeah, Rick Ocasek. Where were you? in a small little town in North Carolina called Greensboro, Greensboro, North Carolina. We both know Greensboro. Yeah. I lived in Greenville, South Carolina a little bit. So Greensboro is just up the road, just up the road. But that, that's great. I'm super jealous. I would love to have seen the cars. That's super cool. So what was your first job? Well, first way I got any money is when I took over a friend's paper route for a while. And I I can't remember. I think he went on vacation. I delivered papers for a week or so and I made, I don't know, a few bucks kind of thing. But my first real summer job because my parents encouraged me to work from the age of like 13 or 14 is I painted fences, not Huckleberry Finn style, but I... Okay, Tom Sawyer. Or, or got other people <laughs> to paint it, yes. I did, and I was not very good at it. I will tell you, many years later, I'm still not very good, so I don't paint my own house or any of that kind of stuff. So I have no artistic capability when it comes to paint. Fair enough. Got it. Okay. Well, so we know painter's not on the list, but the next question is, if you couldn't do what you're doing now, what profession would you attempt? 
if I couldn't, well, I love my job. I have a passion job. So I don't want to give this up. I know. I know. But if I say can't do that anymore, what would you do? Well, you know, I, I used to say my secret passion is, but I told so many people over so many years, you can't call it my secret passion anymore. So I love to write. And I, I, well, I'm not a great sailor, but I, I, but I can imagine writing the great American novel and then sailing around the South Pacific or the Mediterranean or something like that. So I've written, it's funny, I, I'm better at short stories than I am at novels. So I, I should give up writing the great American novel and stick to short stories. <laughs> that is awesome. Wow. That's really cool. Your favorite app on your phone. You know, I don't know if any of you ever look at the phone keeps track of what you use the most. So if, if I'm, if this really is a confession, I say, what app am I using the most on my phone? The answer is Twitter. But I'm not sure if that's my favorite app of an I used to. <laughs> Mix, mixed feelings, I can see. Yeah. I will say the, the app I'm playing with the most right now is an app that most people haven't heard of called Reface, which allows you to take images of people and inject them into like famous paintings and in videos and stuff like that. And it's surprisingly realistic. So for people's birthdays, I'm like injecting their face in the Mona Lisa or... I actually, it took a friend of mine whose birthday was yesterday and I'm pretending he was Bruce Willis and Die Hard and uh, Yippie Kaye and all that. So it, it's kind of fun for that. Nice. I'm definitely going to check that out. Reface. Okay. Last question. What is Jonathan Becker's biggest indulgence? Oof. Well, I hear indulgence. I probably, the answer is ice cream. I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe even a bit of an ice cream snob. I do not go down to the corner store and just buy the store brand stuff. I'm a huge fan of micro ice creams. There's a bunch of them around here. I've been known to buy ice, artisanal ice cream from states outside here. Yeah. I, I like to say I'd probably weigh 50 pounds less if it was not for ice cream and cheese. So there you go. <laughs> Ooh, we had a great episode with the CMO of Wisconsin cheese. So we'll have to connect you to her, but what's, what kind of flavor? Like when you, do you do the like weird artisanal flavor ice cream or do you have a go-to that you test out across? Okay, so, so I'm going to give you a slightly complicated answer to this. Is I've hardly met a flavor I don't like that, that isn't well done. I'm, I'm more of a creamy ice cream than an icy ice cream, and there's a whole subculture of the difference between the two, which I won't bore readers with. And it has to do a lot with flavor profile and the ingredients and stuff like that. But left to my own devices, the way I will test an ice cream is just by regular vanilla. Because just by regular vanilla, you can figure out what kind of vanilla flavor, what kind of creams they're using. How, do they freeze it quickly or freeze it slowly? Do they allow it to come slightly on? There's a lot you can tell just by regular, but it's not what I would choose to eat if I already know an ice cream flavor, but that's my test to see how authentic it is. If you want to be slightly beyond that, then prick a fruit flavor like strawberry or boysenberry or something like that and see how the berries interact with the cream. And that will tell you a lot as well. You are a student. Man, that's, you described everything that I do with gin. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's the same, but different. Like we're a family show here. So I figured I couldn't tell too many gins. Oh, um, <laughs> my, my bad, my bad. But I do have one more question. Who's your pick to win the cup? When people ask me about non-sharks, I, I almost always say, it's a little bit asking like, who's your favorite kid or who's your favorite pet or stuff like that. You're not supposed to pick one. I will say it's hard not to be, get caught up in the Habs, it's a Montreal Canadian sort of emotional run. And, you know, Corey Price is just, their goalie has been out of this world. So 
I, I can't pick a favorite, but I think they have destiny on their side right now. Fair enough. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, that was so fun. Thank you so much for joining us, for being a fantastic guest, for giving us things to think about. I am so grateful for your time. Spike, thanks as always for being my trusty partner on CX Confessions. Thanks everybody for tuning in and we hope you join us next time. See you later. And remember, you can find us anywhere podcasts are out there in the wild. The Spotify's, the Apples of the world, you name it. If there's podcasts, we are there. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to rate us. And please give us feedback. We want to hear it all. Thanks again. Your customers expect to be understood. Their likes and dislikes, their history with your brand, and their communication preferences. But so many companies struggle to connect the dots of interaction across their own teams and channels, and it's creating customer experience challenges and disasters. That's where Koros can help. Koros is the award-winning customer engagement platform built to turn those siloed interactions with your customer into enterprise value. Koros works with more than 2,000 of the world's leading brands and powers more than 500 million digital interactions every day. Koros is the award-winning platform for digital-first customer engagement. Ready to create human connection across the digital customer experience to create customers for life? Learn more at Koros.com. Thanks for listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. See you next time.